Amen. It's a joy to be here with you guys today. Uh, we've missed you. We love you. Um, and I can't believe it's been almost three years since I retired. Um, I follow what's going on. I'll keep up with the newsletter and the Grace Advance, and I'm excited about what the Lord is doing here, and uh, I'm just tickled to death that God smiled upon Grace Church and brought the grand to be the pastor here at, at Grace. It's a joy to be here. Uh, Linda sends her greetings. She uh, just wasn't able to be up and about today. Uh, she uh, thanks you for your prayers for her. The chemo is not doing what we had hoped it would do. It is causing a lot of bone pain and muscle pain and severe uh, fatigue, but she's a trooper. She's hanging in there, and God is good. I, uh, when I read in the, the newsletter that Legrand was going to be getting back from Africa yesterday and preaching today, I thought, man, there ain't no way. I know I couldn't do it. And so uh, he was gracious enough to allow me the opportunity to share with you guys and I'm excited about that. I don't get many opportunities to preach. It's sort of like old faithful. The pressure sort of builds up, you know, and, and I have to spew. Of course, that might not be a good illustration. Uh, but the principle is true. <laughs> All right. I have entitled my message today, The Energizing Quality of a Personal Knowledge of the Attributes of God. Now, if you can't wrap your mind around that title, I have a Roan County title for you. What does your wanter want? What does your wanter want? Now, what I'm going to say today may be the most important message I have ever brought to you in our more than 30 years together. Now, let me ask you a question. How is your ministry? Now, you may be thinking, I'm not in the ministry. You may not be in vocational ministry. You may not have a pastorate. You may not be a missionary on a foreign field, but if you are a believer, you are in the ministry. Your mate is your ministry. Your, your children are your ministry. Your job is your ministry. Your boss is your ministry. Your co-workers are your ministry. Your neighbors are your ministry. Your church life is your ministry. The cashiers in the businesses you frequent are your ministries, and on and on and on and on it goes. Everything about your life Everything in your life and everyone in your life is your God-ordained ministry. Now, God has given you the life that you have. He's put you where you are to be his minister in everything in that environment. And your ministry is to whomever you come in contact, and your ministry is to be Jesus to everybody around you. Now, when I say you are to be Jesus to everyone you come in contact, I do not mean that you should be healing the sick or walking on water or raising the dead. I mean that you should have the same compassion for others as he did. That you should have the same desire for the good of others as he did. And that you should meet the needs of the hurting and the less fortunate as he did. And that you should meet people where they are and help them get to where they need to be. So what did you do this week to be Jesus to anybody in your life? Did you give of yourself to minister to any one of the people with whom you came in contact this week? Did you give of any of your wherewithal to minister to anyone this week? Did you put yourself out in any way for any individual in your circle of acquaintances? Did you 
express any interest or concern for them or the things of their life? Did you speak any words of encouragement to anyone this week? Did you share Jesus with anyone you came in contact with this week? Did you pray this week for anyone in your circle of acquaintances? Now, as I, as I asked those questions, you may have been thinking to yourself, well, I don't feel like ministering to these people. My wife is needy. My husband is cold. My boss is a pain. My neighbor is a reprobate. My co-worker is unlovable. And it will take more effort to minister to them than I, just, than I want to put in. I just don't want to minister. I'm going to show you a remedy for a wanter that doesn't want to minister to others. What does your wanter want? Now we're going to contrast two Bible characters this morning. And we're going to look at their wanters. We're going to look at their ministries. One wanted to minister, the other did not. Now we're going to see that one had an exalted view of self and the other had a lowly view of self. And, the most, and most importantly, we're going to see what caused the differences in their views of self and in their wanters. Now we're going to be looking at two passages this morning. First of all, we're going to be, if you'll find Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6, that's page 480. If you're using the Pew Bible, find Isaiah 6. Stick a bookmark there, and Isaiah 6 will be back over here in just a few minutes. Isaiah 6. All right, when you find Isaiah 6, then find 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And 2 Timothy 4 is on page 828 in the Pew Bible. Our text will be 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 and 10 to begin with. Now in this, his second letter to Timothy, Paul wrote to his son in the ministry and asked him to come see him as quickly as he could. Verse 9, 2 Timothy 4, Paul tells Timothy, Be diligent to come to me quickly. Don't dilly-dally, make haste, put everything you have into coming to see me as quickly as you can for... And Paul is about to give Timothy the reason why he needed to come quickly to see the apostle. Because... Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. Crescens has departed for Galatia, and Titus has departed for Dalmatia. Now in verse 10, the apostle referred to three men who were his traveling companions and fellow laborers, but who were not with him at the moment he wrote to, to Timothy. Demas had departed for Thessalonica, Crescens had departed for Galatia, and Titus had departed for Dalmatia. Now, Paul was not bothered by the departures of Crescens and Titus. He made no commentary about their departure from him, but he was bothered by the departure of Demas. Paul added a line of commentary when he referred to Demas' departure that he did not say about Crescens or Titus. The apostle Paul said that Demas had departed for Thessalonica. But Demas had not merely departed from Paul, as had Crescens and Titus. He had forsaken Paul. Now that statement makes it evident that before Demas departed, he and Paul had had a discussion about Demas leaving and the reason for Demas' departure. Demas had told Paul he was no longer desirous of ministering with Paul, that he was no longer desirous of being with Paul, and he was going to leave. And after he departed from Paul, Demas was not going to return to the apostle at a later date. 
He was finished with Paul. He was finished with the ministry. He was forsaking Paul. He was turning his back on Paul. He was turning his back on the ministry. His wanter no longer wanted to minister with Paul. But Paul knew that Demas was not merely leaving him as Crescens and Titus had done. Paul knew that Demas was forsaking him. He knew Demas was not coming back. And the Greek word translated as forsaken in verse 10 means to abandon, to desert, to leave in straits, to leave helpless, to be totally abandoned, to utterly forsake. Demas had not merely left Paul to go to Thessalonica. He had utterly forsaken Paul. Now, Paul did not mean that Demas had apostatized. He did not mean that Demas had left the faith. Paul did not say Demas has forsaken the faith. He says, Demas has forsaken me. And Paul meant that Demas had turned his back on him and turned his back on the work of the ministry with Paul. And for Demas to forsake Paul and for Demas to forsake the work of the ministry would have been bad enough in and of itself. But when, but when Demas forsook Paul was an even more disturbing detail in this saga because when Paul wrote 2 Timothy, he was imprisoned in the maritime prison in Rome. He was facing execution. And when Paul penned 2 Timothy, he knew the time of his death was near. Look up a few verses in verse 6. Paul said, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The very last part of offering a burnt sacrifice was to pour wine over it, a drink offering. It, 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 it was, as a sacrifice was consumed in the fire, the wine was poured over it. The sacrifice of Paul's life was completed. And the drink offering was already being poured out, which was the very last part of the sacrifice. The time of my departure is at hand, Paul says. The time for me to leave this world is here. I have fought the good fight. Past tense. My fight is over. I have finished the race. Past tense. My race in this world is over. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all of those who love his appearing. Then verse 9, in the very next verse, in the context of Paul's discussion about his life being over, he tells Timothy, because of my impending death and because Demas has forsaken me, I am alone, and you diligently need to come see me quickly. And Paul and Timothy were very close friends. And Paul wanted to see his son in the ministry before he left this world, so he, he told Timothy not only that he needed to come so he could see his spiritual son, but he needed to come quickly if he were going to see the apostle this side of eternity because his death was imminent. And the Greek verb translated in this verse as be diligent, as when Paul told Timothy to be diligent to come see him, means to use speed, to make haste, to exert oneself. And Paul told Timothy that he needed to exert himself that he needed to put his entire being into his effort to come see him, that he need not waste time. He needed to come as quickly as was possible to see him because his time in this world was short. Now, the Bible does not reveal the, the exact time or manner of the Apostle Paul's death, but according to Eusebius, who was an early church historian, Eusebius wrote that Paul was beheaded by the order of the Roman Emperor Nero or by one of his subordinates. Now, this is the point I'm trying to make. It was in Paul's last, day, last days on earth that Demas forsook him. 
So Demas not only left the work of the ministry, Demas not only left Paul, he forsook Paul. And Demas not only forsook Paul, but he forsook Paul while Paul was in prison. He forsook Paul when Paul was facing execution and in need of support and companionship. So in other words, Paul was needing Demas to be with him and to minister to him in his last days, but Demas did not want to. Paul goes on to say in verse 10, that when Demas departed, he left for Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica was probably his hometown because in Philemon, verse 24, Demas is listed side by side with Aristarchus, whom we know from Acts 27, verse 2, was from Thessalonica. And since Demas and Aristarchus are listed together in, in Philemon 24, then they were probably associated together, had some sort of relationship together, and most likely were fellow citizens of Thessalonica. So Demas forsook Paul in his hour of need. He did not want to minister with him or to him. And Demas turned his back on Paul. He turned his back on the work of the ministry. And he went home to Thessalonica. His warner no longer wanted to minister. Now that's pretty cold and callous behavior on the part of Demas, was it not? But was Demas' behavior any colder or more callous than your behavior this week when your mate was needing you and needing your support, needing your encouragement, needing you to minister to him or to her, and you did not give it to them because you did not want to? Or when your kids were needing some daddy time or mama time and you were tired, you did not want to minister to them, and you yelled at them to leave you alone, you did not want to minister to them? Or that clerk in the convenience store who had just broken up with her boyfriend when you came in the store and who because of that was consumed with grief and who because of that she was distracted and gave you the wrong change and you berated her for her mistake, you did not want to minister to her. Now, just like Demas, your warner didn't want to minister. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about Demas. And up till this passage in 2 Timothy 4, Scripture speaks well of him. In Paul's letter to Philemon in verse 24, he referred to Demas as my fellow laborer. Paul said that Demas was his companion, his co-worker in the ministry. And at the time Paul wrote to Philemon, Demas wanted to labor with Paul. In Colossians 4.14, when Paul sent his letter to the Colossian people, Demas sent along his greetings as well. So Demas had some sort of relationship with the church at Colossae, and he had probably accompanied Paul to Colossae and had labored with the apostle in his ministry there and had developed friendships with the church in Colossae that he wanted to acknowledge when Paul sent his letter to Colossae. Prior to Paul writing to Timothy, Demas had been an active and vital member of Paul's missionary team. So what happened to cause Demas to turn his back on Paul? What happened to cause him to turn his back on the ministry? Why did he no longer want to minister? Why did he not feel any sense of friendship? Why did he not feel any sense of concern about what was going on in Paul's life, in the twilight of Paul's life, whereby he would stay and minister with Paul and to Paul? Why did his wanter no longer want to minister? Well, Paul tells us what caused this apathetic attitude in Demas' life. Paul said in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 10 that Demas forsook him because he loved this present world. Demas did not merely have an interest in the things of the world. He did not merely have an infatuation with the things of the world. He had a full-blown love affair with the world. And Paul said that Demas loved this world. Now, there are several 
words in the Greek language that are translated as love. And Paul used the word agape here, which is the strongest word for love, when he describes Demas' attraction to this world. So Demas had a strong love of the world, a, a strong love of the things of the world that caused him to want to leave the ministry and forsake Paul. His wonder wanted the world and no longer wanted to be a part of the ministry. So the cause of Demas' forsaking Paul in the ministry, I mean, the cause of his wonder no longer wanting to minister was that his love of this present world surpassed his love of the future world. Demas took his eyes off eternity because of his fixation upon the temporal. And because Demas had his heart set on this present world, he forgot his role in this world. He forsook Paul. He forsook the ministry because he was more interested in his own life and his personal interest than he was about Paul and Paul's problems in the ministry. His warner did not want what it used to want. He wanted the world. He wanted the things of the world. And if your warner does not want to minister to those around you, then you have, and you have more interest in the world than you do in the next world, then you are in dangerous spiritual territory. Perhaps some of you have forsaken Christian friendships or relationships, or maybe you've forsaken ministry because of your love for this present world, and you let the things of this world take priority over the things of Christ. And you let your love for the world and the things of the world consume your interest and consume your time. Maybe in the past you taught Sunday school or worked with the youth or boldly shared your faith with those around you or passed out gospel tracts or quickly and graciously uh, ministered to those around you in need. You were good to check on the elderly neighbors and neighbors who might be in need. You were quick to do anything that needed to be done around the church. But today you're a bench warmer for Jesus. And you no longer do anything to further the gospel in this world. You never share your faith anymore. You're spasmodic in your church attendance. And if asked to do something in church, you always have an excuse why you can't. Your lifestyle does not reflect the faith you claim you have. And like Demas, you live in the present world with no regard for the future world. And you do not want to live for the Lord. You do not want to minister for the Lord. And hopefully, if you have seen yourself in Demas, you're wondering, okay, how can I remedy my warner not wanting to minister? Now we'll see the answer to that question in the person of Isaiah. Now I want to contrast Demas's wants and warners with those of Isaiah, a man who was faithful in his ministry to this world, and see if we can determine why Isaiah, Isaiah's warner wanted to minister. You can drop your place in uh, 2 Timothy and pick up in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6, we'll begin reading in verse 1. Isaiah said, <clears throat> In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it, that is, above the throne of God, stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two of his wings he covered his face. With two of his wings he covered his feet. With two of his wings he flew. And one of the seraphim cried to another seraph and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And when the seraph had proclaimed the nature of God, the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So Isaiah said to himself, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongues from off the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. 
your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. And verse 8, notice Isaiah's wants and wonders. God exclaimed, I need someone to minister to the Israelites. Then God wondered aloud, Whom shall I send? Whom do I want to do this task? Who do I want to assign this ministry? Isaiah overheard the self-inquiry of God, and he cried out, Here am I, send me. Now, as you read Isaiah's exclamation in verse 8, it just feels like he was jumping up and down and waving his arms back and forth, saying, Hey, Lord, here, over here, here I am. Let me do it, please, please, please. He was excited to minister for the Lord. He was excited about ministry. He was anxious to do the Lord's bidding. His water wanted what God wanted. Now, that's quite a contrast with Demas, isn't it? Now, Isaiah did not qualify what he was willing to do. He did not say, I will do your will if I can live where I want to live. I'll do your will if I can have a prestigious ministry. I'll do your will if it does not take up too much of my private time. I'll do your will if I don't have to minister to ornery people. I'll do your will if performing it will not make me uncomfortable or take me out of my comfort zone. Isaiah's warner wanted to do whatever God wanted him to do, regardless of what God wanted him to do. Now let me pose some questions for you to think about. What could account for the difference between Demas' attitude about ministry and Isaiah's attitude about ministry? Why did Demas not want to minister, and why could Isaiah not wait to minister? Why was Isaiah so ardent about doing the Lord's will and Demas was so apathetic about it? So how do you account for the differences in the wants and the wanters of these two men? Well, the reason Isaiah was so passionate about ministry in verse 8 is because of what he experienced in verses 1 through 7. In verse 1, Isaiah summarized what happened in verses 1 through 7. In verse 1, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. And then in verses 1 through 7, he describes what it was when he saw the Lord. Now notice what Isaiah learned of the nature and the character and the attributes of God in his vision that's recorded in the first seven, chapters, first seven verses. First of all, he saw the plurality and the singularity of the Godhead. In verse 8, he says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Whom shall I, singular, send and who will go for us, plural? God referred to himself as I and us. Isaiah experienced the singularity of God's person. He experienced the plurality of God's person. Now, I do not know that we can make a full-blown doctrine of the Trinity from this passage, but I believe there's a hint of that in what the seraph said in verse 3. Now, I did not read this in a commentary. I did not read this in any systematic theology book, so take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt. Isaiah did not say this. The Apostle Paul did not say this, but a Papa Paul said this, okay? In verse 3, one of the seraphs said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now, the seraph used the term holy three times. It's as if he were pointing to God the Father. He is holy. God the Son. He is holy. God the Holy Spirit. He is holy. He is holy. He is holy. He is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God 
of hosts. He is the thrice holy God. Now, regardless of whether Isaiah got a revelation of the Trinitarian nature of God, he was shown the singularity of God's person and the plurality of God's person. He saw that God was wholly other. He sees the sovereignty of God in this passage. In verse 5, Isaiah refers to God as the king. In verse 1, God was sitting on a throne. God the king is on his throne. He is the ruler of the universe. He is a monarch. He is a sovereign over all that there is. And in the same way that a monarch, in a true monarchy, rules and reigns over everyone and everything within the kingdom, so God, as the sovereign of the universe, rules and reigns over everyone and everything and every event within the universe. Isaiah also found out that this sovereign king of the universe can be known personally. In verse 5, Isaiah refers to God as the Lord. And here the word Lord is in all capital letters. The word Lord in verse 5 is different from the word Lord in verse 1, where only the first letter is capitalized. There, that is a translator's tool to signify that there are two different words in the original language. In verse 1, the word Lord is the Hebrew word meaning Lord. In verse 5, the word written as Lord it is the word for, in all capital letters, is the word for God's personal name, Jehovah, or what we say is Jehovah. Lord with lowercase letters, verse 1, refers to God's authority. He is Lord of all. Lord in uppercase letters is God's personal name. This sovereign Lord of the universe is knowable through the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah also sees the holiness of God in this passage. As we've already said in verse 3, the seraph proclaimed, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of holies of hosts. The holiness of God is his personal purity. It is his separation from anything that defiles. It is his hatred of all things ungodly. The holiness of God is his preeminent attribute because it is the only one of his attributes that's referred to in scripture in a triplet. We never read about the love, love, love of God or the omniscience, 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 omniscience of God, but we do read as in verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The seraph was not stuttering when he repeated the word holy three times. In English, if we want to emphasize something when we are writing, we will underline it. We will put it in italics. We will use boldface type. In Hebrew, in the Hebrew language and literature, when the writer wanted to emphasize something, he would repeat it. That's why Jesus would say, verily, verily, I say unto you. He's emphasizing something. The seraphim around the throne of God emphasize the holiness of God to the third degree. Because God's foremost attribute is holiness, and all of his other attributes are subject to his holiness. Now that means, for example, that God cannot love us if he cannot love us and still be holy. God cannot love us and accept us into himself if our sins are not taken care of. And the reason God could love sinners and still be holy is because his holiness was satisfied when Christ experienced his judgment on the cross and paid off our sin debt for us. Isaiah also saw the glory of God. Now we see the glory of God exemplified in this passage in several ways. First of all, the glory of God was exemplified in the location of God's throne that Isaiah saw. Verse 1, God was high and lifted up. God's throne was not just lifted up. It, it was high and lifted up. God's throne is high above the throne that's merely lifted up. Sovereigns elevate their thrones so as to be above their subjects and to exemplify their supremacy over their subjects 
and the glory that is theirs is sovereign's. The higher the throne, the greater the glory. In 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 19, it says that Solomon had six steps going up to his throne, which means his throne was about four feet off of the floor. So he, there's the floor, there's his throne, there's Solomon. It would have been an intimidating thing for Solomon's subject to stand before him when he was on his exalted throne. They would have been looking up at him in his magnificence as king. God's throne is high and lifted up. And Isaiah saw God's throne high above him. We also see the glory of God exemplified in his train. Verse 1, it tells us that the train of God's robe filled the temple. The longer the train of a sovereign's robe, the greater his glory. You remember the train on Princess Diana's wedding dress? It was 25 feet long. It was a magnificent and glorious thing to see her enter St. Saint Paul's Cathedral with that 25-foot train trailing along behind her. In verse 1, Isaiah saw God's train. It was so long it filled the temple. It was stuffed into that temple like one would stuff a parachute into a backpack. We also see the glory of God exemplified in the attendants around his throne, the seraphim. And the same way that monarchs had numerous princes and nobles to attend them and to give magnificence to their court, so God has the seraphim around his throne as his attendants. Now all we know about seraphim from scripture is recorded here in Isaiah chapter 6. The living creatures of Revelation chapter 4 and, and 5 have similar qualities to the seraphim here and may indeed be these seraphim, but we just don't know for sure. But whether or not the living creatures are the seraphim, seraphim appear to be a superior rank of angels. They appear to be the preeminent rank of angels. They seemingly are even superior to the angels. And the seraphim appear to be personal attendants of Jehovah God and not messengers of God as are the angels. In Psalm 104 verse 2 it says that God covers himself with light as with a garment. He radiates light that is brighter than the noonday sun, according to what Paul said in Acts 26, verse 13. The seraphim abide in that light. And the word seraphim means burning ones. And by referring to them as burning ones or fiery ones, it seems that their fire is the glow that they radiate because they are near the glow of the glory of God, much like when Moses' face glowed with the glory of God after he came down off the mountain after his 40-day encounter with God. God's glory is so brilliant that the seraphim cover their eyes in reverence to his presence, and they cover their feet out of reverence to the holy ground upon which they stand. We also see the glory of God in verse 4 when he says that the house was filled with smoke. The smoke was the same thing as the glory cloud that the Israelites in their wilderness wandering saw over the tabernacle of God. The glory cloud in the book of Exodus was the visible manifestation of God. Here in, verse, in Isaiah 6, that glory cloud is present in the throne room of God because God himself is there. We see the forgiveness of God in this passage as well. Isaiah saw the forgiveness of God. When Isaiah recognized his sinfulness in verse 5, God had a remedy, verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from the tongs of the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Now in the same way that a hot poker can cauterize a wound, cleanse a wound, and kill the infection in the wound, the live coal from the altar cleansed Isaiah of his sin. 
Now, this does not mean that the fire from the altar had any physical effect to purify him from his sin. It means it was emblematic. It was symbolic of such a purifying. Notice that the live coal was taken from off the altar. The altar was that place where sacrifices were made for the sins of man. The altar represents the work of redemption. The Old Testament altar was a picture. It was a type. It was a representation of the New Testament work of Christ and his redemption. In the Old Testament, worshipers brought animal sacrifices to the tabernacle or to the temple to offer for their sins, which were consumed upon the fires of the altar. Christ, the innocent sacrifice, bore our sins at Calvary and was consumed in the fires of God's wrath for our sins so that we might go free. And in Isaiah 6, it was because of the work of the altar that Isaiah's sins were purged, thereby enabling him to be the minister God needed him to be. Now we could go into more detail in this passage on how it exemplifies and the attributes and character qualities of God, but I want you to notice the effect upon Isaiah of having seen the Lord in this fashion, of having experienced the attributes of God and the nature of God. Verse 5, <clears throat> Isaiah said of himself, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, though this through this experience, Isaiah saw his utter sinfulness and the infinite gulf that stood between him and holy God. Now, this is an important point. The higher our view of God, the lower our view of self will be. Now, the reverse of that is true as well. The higher our view of ourselves, the lower our view of God. Isaiah had a high view of God and a low view of self. On the other hand, Demas had a high view of self and a low view of God and a low view of his, of his ministry. Now, what did Paul say about himself when he thought about God's mercy toward him? In Romans 7, 24, Paul said of himself, O wretched man that I am. And then in, second, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul also said he was the chief of sinners. He was the highest ranking sinner, he thought. Now, when Paul thought about what God in his mercy had done for him, he was overwhelmed with a low view of self. Notice what Isaiah said about himself when he saw the Lord. He said, verse 5, woe is me. Now, that phrase doesn't really communicate with us in the 21st century uh, the depth of what Isaiah was saying. <clears throat> in fact, to us today, in today's world, that statement sounds something like maybe Granny would say when she was complaining about a rheumatism. Oh, woe is me. But in the Bible, the most frequent form of communication from God took the form of an oracle. In other words, when the prophets of God were given a message from God to deliver to their people, the prophets would speak an oracle. And most of the time in Scripture, whenever prophets deliver a message from God, it was not written down, it was spoken, it was a verbal oracle. Now, there were two types of oracles. There was a positive oracle and a negative oracle. The positive oracles were prefaced with the term blessed. The negative oracles were prefaced with the term woe. A woe was a pronouncement of doom. It was a pronouncement of impending judgment. In Matthew 23, 13, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He was pronouncing doom upon them he told the scribes and the Pharisees of their impending judgment. 
And when Isaiah saw the glory of the holy God and all of his splendor, he pronounced doom upon himself. He proclaimed that he himself was worthy of judgment. He saw the infinite gulf that separates sinful man from holy God. He was overwhelmed with how holy God was and how vile he was. Isaiah had a high view of God and a low view of self. All right, let's, let's uh, end our exposition and make application. Let's apply what we've learned. The energizing quality of a personal knowledge of the attributes and character of God. Notice how what Isaiah experienced of God's nature in verses 1 through 7 energized him for ministry in verse 8. The reason Isaiah's warner wanted to minister in verse 8 was because of what he had experienced in verses 1 through 7. In verse 1, as we've said, he summarized what he experienced when he said he saw the Lord. Because of what Isaiah experienced in chapter 6, he got a high view of God and a low view of himself. And the reason our warners do not want to minister is because we've not seen the Lord. I'm not saying we must see him visibly with our eyes to be motivated to minister. I, I am saying that we must see him with the eyes of faith to be motivated to minister just like Isaiah. Now the reason we do not minister is, is because we have too low a view of God and too high a view of ourselves. Rather than having a high view of God and a low view of ourselves like Isaiah, like Paul. That was Demas's problem. He had a high view of himself and his personal wants, which precipitated a desire for this present world and not the future world. And the way to obtain a low view of self is to have a high view of God. In this side of eternity, you will not see the Lord with your eyes as Isaiah did, but you can see him with the eyes of faith in a way that transforms your life just as dramatically as was Isaiah's transformed when he visibly saw the Lord. What does your warner want? Does your warner want to serve self or to serve the Savior? If your warner wants to serve self, then you need the energizing quality of, of a personal knowledge of the attributes of God to change your warner. And I think the best way to get that personal knowledge of the attributes of God is to replicate what happened to Isaiah. I'm not saying that you should or even could have the same sort of experience that Isaiah had in his vision. What I am saying is that you can have a life-changing, ministry-empowering, wanter-wanting experience with God like Isaiah if you will seek to know God through his attributes and his character qualities. Study the attributes of God that Isaiah experienced and which so drastically changed his life and dramatically energized him to do the will of God. And you too can have a low view of self and a high view of the sovereign. And when you can catch a glimpse of God's nature, then you will experience the energizing quality of a personal knowledge of the attributes of God, and your warner will want what God wants. Now, I'm not talking about merely learning facts about the attributes of God to fill your mind. I am talking about learning things that will change your heart, things that will change your wanter. Now, what I'm talking about is not something that anyone can instruct you. It's not anything that books alone could teach you. I'm talking about things that only God's Word and God's Holy Spirit can teach you when you search out those things. Personal instruction and books may be the catalyst that the Lord uses to teach you these deep things, but you can only learn them if God opens your eyes to see them. 
Therefore, every time you sit down to read God's word, every time you sit down to study the attributes of God, your prayer should be the same as the psalmist in Psalm 119, 18. Lord, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. Now, what I'm talking about will not come to you with a periodic five-minute cursory reading of Scripture or the books that I'll recommend in just a moment. What I'm talking about will only come with serious, dedicated, protracted time meditating in God's Word, thoughtfully reading the books that expound Scripture and exalt the Savior, and then bathing all of it in prayer. You will need to spend a quantity of time in personal introspection, in serious reading and prayer. And a quick cursory reading of Scripture or a book on the attributes of God 15 minutes before you walk out the door to work will never produce this exalted view of God that you need to transform your wanter. In the parable of the soils in Matthew 13, 19, one of the hearers of the word of the kingdom uh, does not understand. It says, then... That wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. Therefore, we need to understand God's word so that the evil one does not snatch away what we have read. So your prayer should be, as you study the character of God, Lord, help me to understand. Teach me about yourself. Another hearer in Matthew 13 receives the seed of the word. But it says the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word that he did receive. Now, that is usually what happens in our morning devotions before we leave for work. We sit down, we read God's Word, a truth jumps out at us, but instead of pausing and ruminating on that passage, our mind flits to and fro, thinking about everything we're going to face that day at work or when we get home. And like the hearer who received the seed of the Word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out that Word that we receive, so too our unfocused mind chokes out the seed of the Word. Matthew 13 shows us that there are things the hearers of God's word need to do in order for God's word in our hearts to take root and to grow. And it will take effort on your part for the word of God to blossom in your heart and to give you an exalted view of God and a low view of self and to transform your wanter. It will take effort on your part for the word of God to blossom in your heart. As you do this study on the attributes of God, let your prayer be the same as Moses in Exodus 33:18. Lord, show me your glory. Lord, show me yourself. Lord, give me a high view of yourself. Lord, let me see you with the eyes of faith. And let me suggest that you may also want to fast as you seek the Lord's face. Remember that a high view of God gives us a low view of ourselves. Fasting is a way of promoting the low view of self. In Ezra 8, verse 21, Ezra pro proclaimed a fast. Notice what he said the purpose of this fast was. He says, I proclaimed the fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. Ezra said, I proclaimed a fast for two reasons. I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before God, so that we could seek from Him the right way, so we could know His will. 
Fasting humbles us. It promotes the low view of self. It enhances our sense of God's presence and God's will. And to accentuate your efforts in this regard, you may want to take a personal retreat for a day or two. Go somewhere by yourself. Get away from the hustle and bustle of your life. Go camp out in the woods. Get a cabin in Gatlinburg. Leave your phone off except for a time or two a day when you check in with someone to be sure everything back home is okay. You, some of you may want to gather together and take a retreat together. Have a time of Bible study on the attributes of God. Maybe fast a meal or two and spend that time together in prayer or in personal uh, prayer. Read books that portray an exalted view of God, especially books about his attributes. Now, I personally think, because of Isaiah's story, that the quickest and best way to do what I'm talking about this, this morning, the quickest and best way to transform your water is to study the attributes of God, to get a glimpse of the person of God. Now, there are some exceptional books out there to give you an exalted view of God. In your bulletin, you'll find a book list that I uh, am showing you. Let me encourage you to use one of these books in your quiet time and in your quest to know God. If you're not familiar with these authors, let me suggest maybe that you start with Pink, Arthur W. Pink, uh, that's on that list there. Uh, some of these books are in your library. The Knowledge of the Holy that is listed on the book is in your library. Knowing God by J.I. Packer is also in your library. This one is not on the list, but it, 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 it needs to be. This is one of my top five favorite books of all time, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Uh, it is outstanding. The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. But there are other books on this list. There are a lot of good books out there on the attributes of God. I just chose these because they're available on Amazon, and I know everybody shops on Amazon. There are some wonderful systematic theology books out there. There's some in your library as well that have excellent sections on the attributes of God. They're more expensive than the books that I've put on this list. If you've not discovered the Puritan Library website, you need to find puritanlibrary.com, puritanlibrary.com. They have all sorts of writings by the Puritan writers, and uh, you can download them in various formats. You can put them on your readers if you have them. You can download them in PDF format, puritanlibrary.com. There are, are some on there on the attributes of God. There are others that would be just as encouraging. When God does a deep work in your heart, when you study his nature, it will not only energize your ministry, it will not only make your want or want to minister, it will also revolutionize your faith life. Do you know why your faith is weak? Do you know why your faith, why you're so full of fear? It's because you don't know God as you should. It's because you do not understand the person and the nature of God the way you should. In Daniel 11:32, it says, The people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. The people who know their God shall be strong. That's not referring to physical strength. It's talking about spiritual strength. When your world falls apart, when you lose your job, when you get a bad report from the doctor, when your child moves off to Timbuktu, when you've got too much month at the end of the money, when you have a special loved one pass into eternity and you're full of dread and you're full of fear, it's because you do not comprehend the nature of God. 
It's only when you have experienced the energizing quality of the personal knowledge of the attributes of God that you can believe that he is love and that he is sovereign and that this loving, sovereign God in his providence has allowed these things for your good and somehow, some way, they will bring glory to him and work out for your good. This, this realization deep down in your soul will bring you peace that passes understanding even in distressing times. Because you can rest in the character of God. What does your warner want? Are you a Demas or an Isaiah? Are your affections on the present world or the future world? And I pray that if you are a Demas, that you will prayerfully, solemnly, repentantly seek to know God more fully through his attributes. If you are a Demas... I pray that you will experience the energizing quality of a personal knowledge of the attributes of God and that your water will be transformed to want the things God wants. Let's pray. Father, we walked off into some deep waters this morning and I pray that you would not let the evil one steal away the seed of the word, that you will, uh, that you will plow up our hearts that you will plant the seed, water the seed, let it take root. I pray for everyone under the sound of my voice that you will be with them. Your spirit will work in their heart. Let the word take root. Keep Satan and his minions from being able to steal away the seed of the word. And may everyone grow in grace and knowledge of you. May they have a fuller realization of your person, your character. And may it give them faith and to live by and to stand on in dark times. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.